If you appreciate Christian, let him know this morning. Thank you for leading us, Christian, and uh, thank you for being here today. Welcome. We have guests this morning. Welcome to you as the children are dismissed. You guys go ahead. Thank you, Beth. I didn't want to worrying last night about too long about announcements, so I kind of sprung it on her, but she did a great job. Uh, if you're watching online and you're wondering where John is, I'm not sure where he is this morning, and that's okay because he needs a break, and he's going to take a break for a few weeks and uh, spend some family time. So pray for John as he's away. He uh, he works hard at leading us and at uh, preaching the word, so everybody needs a break. And I realize that we're already in vacation season, and that breaks the preacher's heart when people... I feel like we just got together, you know, now we're starting to scatter again. But it's okay, because everybody needs to get away. And uh, if, if you're, again, joining us online this morning, I'm Pastor Brian, and I'll be preaching for a few weeks. So thank you again for joining us. If, if you're with us for the first time here in the building, and you'd like to complete one of our connect cards. You'll find that on the back of the chair there in front of you. It says welcome on one side. We ask for just three bits of information. There's some brown boxes at each door that you can drop this in or you can hand it to me this morning or someone that's uh, serving back there and we'd like to get to know you. You can do that online as well. There is uh, a a virtual uh, connect card and we'd like to get to know you and we'd like to get you connected here at Trinity. So welcome to you this morning. Can I brag a little bit today as a dad? On Friday, I'm going to embarrass my daughter, but it's okay. She can handle it. She graduated from Virginia Tech with a degree. I have to read her degree. In cognitive and behavioral neuroscience with a disability study minor. And she graduated with honors. So I am so proud of her this morning. And I'm, I'm embarrassing her because she's not wasting any time. This is her last Sunday with us, and she's going straight to graduate school a week from Monday. She's going to Lenore Ryan College in Hickory, North Carolina, where Allison is from. And she's going to begin occupational therapy studies, 27 months. So you can pray for her. But, uh, and she's probably going to leave today since I embarrassed her, but it's okay. What we're most proud of... <clears throat> is that on Friday night we got to go to a banquet with BCM. It's a Baptist group that uh, serves on campus there at Tech. And we got to meet her BCM fam. And uh, we met some of the most remarkable young, young people who are walking with God at a huge university. And it was a blessing. It was a blessing to meet... Uh, those who've served, Daryl has served there 27 years, I believe, in that position. Uh, he's involved with North Star, and uh, there's another couple that are moving to JMU to start another ministry, but uh, it was such a blessing to meet those students and to know that your daughter has walked with God through high school and through college. It is possible. Young people, I encourage you, I challenge you, and I share that to give glory to God, okay? People say to us sometimes, your, your children have turned out great. I said, time will tell. Time will tell. But we are thankful that they've walked with God, and we give Him the praise for that this morning. So to those of you who are still on that journey, choose well. Find people that also want to walk with God and people who want to serve God, and you can find them. You can find them, and you can find whatever you look for. So um, next Sunday you can console me because she's moving away, okay? I'll probably need it next Sunday morning, but we have one more week. So again, we're thankful. I got that out of the way. I'm glad you had enough gas to get to church today. If you didn't and you're joining us online, don't worry, the truck drivers are coming to the rescue. We've learned a lesson in common sense this week that one pipeline can deliver as much petroleum as 10,000 tanker trucks. So when the gas is back at your gas station, thank a truck driver, because they make the nation move. And Andrew Croom amen that in the first service when I said it, because he's in the trucking industry. But that's your common sense uh, moment for this morning. 
The other common sense thing that we've learned this week is it's safer to be outside than inside during an, an epidemic. So uh, I'm praying that uh, as the mask uh, mandate is removed that God will be merciful to us, aren't you? And we'll see as, how it goes. But it sure is nice to see smiling faces, as Christian said this morning. So welcome to you. We're, we're so glad that you're with us today. How many of you like history? Okay, a few people. Let me ask another question. How many of you think history is important? And increasingly so. As history is being revised, as the history books of America are being rewritten, it's even more important to study history and to go back and learn about the roots and the foundation of your country, to learn what we are based upon, to think for yourself, not just to take what somebody else says, not just to read on social media what this person says or that person says. I would encourage you to study history for yourself. Now, if you're a young person, here's something that uh, will help you. If your parents save their history books... Go back and compare their books to what you're getting today. Just do it on your own. I just challenge you. I'm not preaching down to anybody. I'm just saying go back and for yourself, you look at the history books that were written, say, 30 years ago, 25 or 30 years ago. You will see a vast change. And as our culture continues to be revised, it's going to be even a bigger change. So history is important. Winston Churchill, among others, said, those who do not study history are what? Doomed to repeat it. And uh, there have been a lot of victories throughout the, the, uh, the history of America and the world. And so you need to decide for yourself which side of history you're going to be on. So with that said, we're going to study history for the next few weeks, okay? You can see on the screen that we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. You can go to the Old Testament, and as I said in the early service, I know it's nice to have your uh, Bible on your phone, and that's fine, but I would like to encourage you to carry your Bible the next few weeks because as long as you have this, nobody can rewrite it. As long as you have this, you can carry it with you. You can know it's a dependable translation of the Word of God. Now, there might be a time when uh, Google cancels your Bible app on your phone. Have you thought about that? It's okay for the convenience. But it's good to know the books of the Bible. And when you open and you turn to the Bible, you kind of remember where the books are. So let me just challenge you there. Plus, the preacher likes to hear the rustling of leaves when he gets up to preach. So... Uh, I'd appreciate that if you just carry your Bible with you in the next few weeks. We're in the historic books. Did you know there was a history section of the Old Testament? Well, all the Old Testament is history. Some is still prophecy. But we're in the, uh, the historical section, what we call the historic books, Kings, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and we're going to be in Ezra for a little bit this morning, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time the next few weeks in the book of Nehemiah. So find your place there, please. There were two men in the Bible who were called of God to serve at the grimmest time in the history of Israel. Their names were Ezra and Nehemiah. They were called upon to serve uh, at a time when it was the lowest of the low. Israel was at its lowest uh, the walls of the city had been broken down, the, the, uh, the temple had been destroyed, the foundations of the city were burned, and the people had been taken away in captivity. And these were the men who were called on to stand up with a vision from God and to say to the people, what are we going to do in the midst of this situation? What does God want us to do? And how are we going to have victory even though it looks very grim? Now, you can always already make some parallels to our day, can't you? I'll begin by saying America is not Israel. God made specific promises to Israel. He said, I'm going to give you, Abraham, a land and a throne and a man to be on that throne. And even though there were times when Israel turned from God and turned back to God and turned from God, that's the history of the Old Testament, 
God was faithful and God was always willing to restore his people when they would turn to him. So we're going to look a little bit about, uh, at, at the history of, of uh, this nation, but we're going to draw some, some application of our own day, okay? The people were scattered. They'd been taken captivity. There was no hope. Now, let me see if I can draw a modern-day equivalent to help you understand. Supposing that China, Russia, and Iran came together in confederacy against America and invaded our land. Now, there was a time when we thought that was impossible. I hope it still is. I hope it never happens. But imagine if they invaded our land, that every American was either killed, enslaved, or deported to another country. If you can imagine that, and we, it's hard for us to imagine because we've always felt we're, we're safe, we're removed, we're protected, and may God continue to protect us. But supposing we were invaded and everyone was taken away, the, the private property became the property of another government. Everything that we have enjoyed in America faded away, was destroyed, burned, and the, and the country was desolate. You say, that sounds like science fiction. Well, I hope it is. But that was the situation in Israel. Now, let me ask you this. God made specific promises to Israel. Who are we to think that our nation couldn't be destroyed if God allowed the nation that he loved the most to go through judgment? Now, don't turn me off. It is possible. God's made America no promises. We, we have walked with God. We have built our nation upon the laws of God. We have sought in the past to serve God with our resources. But there's a big change that's happening in our culture. And it's time that the church woke up. The culture is woke, but I think the church is asleep. And I hope that as we go through this series that God begins to awaken us to just what's going on around us and more importantly that he begins to awaken our hearts to what part we have until Jesus comes to take his church home to be with him. He has work for us to do, church. He has work for us to do as a universal church in this world. But we're going to look specifically at some things that I believe that God wants us to do in the time that we're living and the time that God has given us, however long that is. But in order to look forward, we have to look back. You have to know where you came from to know where you were going. So we're going to look at Israel. We're going to go back 25 centuries. You say, how can anything written 25 centuries ago, be trustworthy? Well, it's because God wrote it. And when God writes something, it doesn't change. And when God writes something, it's true. Yes, human history can be revised. We're learning that. There's a lot of confusion about the truth. But when you go back to the unchanging Word of God, you find truth because God does not change and His Word does not change. So 25 centuries ago, there were two men that God used in a great way. It was at a time when there was no hope. It was at a time when things were very grim. It was at a time when their their nation had been desolate for 50 years. Imagine America being invaded and the land laying desolate for 50 years. Well, that probably wouldn't happen because invaders would be after our resources. So there would be activity, but Israel was left desolate for 50 years. As a matter of fact, Daniel and others said it was 70 years from the destruction of the first temple to the rebuilding of the second temple. So you could say there was desolation for 50 to 70 years in the land of Israel. But God hadn't forgotten Israel. 
He was waiting for Israel to turn back to him and to follow the visionary leadership of men that he brought to their nation who said, here is what God wants us to do. Here are our marching orders. Now what are we going to do? So he brought Ezra and Nehemiah. Now let me give you just a little bit of history. I'm laying the context here and then we're going we're gonna to move on in a minute. But again, until we know where we've been, we don't know where we're going. A hundred years, 26 centuries ago, a hundred years before the judgment, God sent Israel prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and a host of others. And they began to preach If you do not turn to God, judgment is coming. If you do not return to the God of your fathers, if you do not return to the God of Moses, if you do not return to the truths of God's word, to the law and to his commandments, and you continue to disobey God, judgment is coming. A hundred years they preached, more or less. And they said, you need to turn to God or judgment is coming. But the people went right on living. They went right on disobeying. And eventually, judgment did come. Somebody want to hop up and close the doors back there for me? Christian, you want to close those two doors in the middle? Okay, the judgment came in 605. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon made the first deportation of people. It was the royal family. It was the, ju- the, the ruling family. A few years later, uh, in um, 597, he took away all the heart of the nation, all the craftsmen, all the skilled people, all the people who made the country work, and deported them. Some 7,000 mighty men uh, were taken to Babylon. Then, in uh, 2 Kings 24 tells us about that. In 586, this is B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were broken down. The, the temple was destroyed. The beautiful temple that the Jews said there's no temple like Solomon's temple was decimated. There were only a few poor people left trying to exist on the land because they were no threat to anyone. They couldn't defend themselves. They uh, were just trying to uh, survive. And so that was the situation when Ezra and Nehemiah came onto the scene. 50 to 70 years. Now, here's what's even more amazing. God predicted this 100 years prior. Isaiah wrote these words. You go to Isaiah, study Isaiah, read chapter 6, chapter 11. And as you go through the book of Isaiah, it's very clear what's coming. You can look back and you can see God was warning them. God was telling them. He raised up prophets. He raised up preachers to stand up and say, this is the word of God. Here's what God has commanded. And if you do not turn to him, judgment is coming. It was interesting as I was studying some in Isaiah. <clears throat> I go all the way back to 1983 when I was in Bible college. Uh, 66 chapters in Isaiah. The first 39 are of judgment, but the last 27 are of comfort. So there's good news. There's, there's light at the end of the tunnel for Israel. And yeah, I know that was 38 years ago. I'm thankful that I've been preaching this book for 38 years, and I do not intend to stop. They can do whatever they want to to me. They can, they can cancel me. But if they cancel me, there will be another young preacher to stand up and take my place. I'm convinced of that because you cannot stop what God wants to do. So what are we going to do in our culture? What are we going to do, church? What are we going to do at a time when we look at what's going on around us and we know how evil some of it is. We know how God's Word is being thrown in His face. We know that we have left the original moorings of our nation. And America is not Israel. But you can draw a parallel. Any nation who turns away from God and from His Word, judgment will come. Some think we're already under the judgment of God. Are we? I don't know. I don't know. We probably should be. As a nation. And I love our country. And I know you do too. 
And we're concerned about the nature, uh, the direction of our country and where we're going. And so were some in Israel, but the majority disobeyed and God brought judgment. Now that's how they got where they were. You have to look back to look forward. But something good happened. Some 50-some years after this desolation and this judgment, God called a man named Ezra to uh, lead a return to the land. But before he called Ezra, he called a king. If you look back at Ezra chapter 1 and the first verse there, this is an unlikely person to come to the rescue of the Jews. But the king's hand is, or king's heart is in God's hand, right? That's what Proverbs says. And God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish no matter who's in office and no matter where they are. He, he, he began to work in the heart and the spirit of this, uh, this Persian king, Cyrus. Chapter 1 of Ezra, verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah and others might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says King Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to to Jerusalem, which is Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Amazing. Amazing. Here's God working in a a king's heart of the very nations that uh, has decimated his people. And he says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make a decree and we're going to send the Jews back to their land and we're also going to send with them the resources necessary to rebuild the land. Only God could do that. And God was keeping his promise to his people, because as they turned to him, he was going to make a way for them to go back to their homeland and to rebuild their homeland. Now, uh, in uh, 538, Ezra said, we're going back, who's going with us? And 50,000 Jews took a step of faith and said, we'll go back. Was it going to be hard? It was going to be the hardest thing they'd ever done. Was there going to be opposition? If you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find out that any time God wants to do something, the devil makes sure there's opposition. They were opposed. They were reproached. They were abused. They were made fun of. Everything that you can imagine, they experienced it. Yet, God had called them to go back to their land. Ezra said, Here's what God wants to do. And 50,000 stepped out and said, I will go back. I'll be part of the remnant that goes back to the land. Well, after four months of travel and stepping out on faith, they came back to the land. Warren Wiersbe, uh, one of my favorite commentators, said several things had to happen before this could take place. Not only did the king decree that they could go back, but the captives had to be released. He had to turn them loose and say, you're free to go back to your land. That happened. The remnant had to return. They had the opportunity, but somebody had to say, I'm going to step out on faith and I'm going to trust what God says and I'm going to, go, I'm going to leave the comforts, if you will, of where they were. At least they had a, a place to, to sleep and eat. We're going to go back to nothing and we're going to step out on faith to go back to our homeland. The remnant of 50,000 returned with Ezra. And they began to rebuild the temple. Now things went pretty well for a while. 
But as I said, you can bet that any time God does something, there will be uh, opposition. And there was opposition. As a matter of fact, there was fake news. Did you know there was fake news 25 centuries ago? We just didn't know what to call it. Now, it traveled a lot slower because we didn't have all these liberal platforms for it to travel to the whole world in one instant. Uh, it traveled slowly, but it, nevertheless, it traveled. And here's what a group said about the Jews to the king. You can't do this. You can't allow these people to go back. First of all, Jerusalem is a rebellious and a wicked city. They were destroyed for a reason. Now, they're rewriting history. You have to, you have to, uh, to know that it wasn't men who destroyed Jerusalem. It was God himself because of their disobedience. He used men to destroy them. But Jerusalem is a rebellious and a wicked city. And if you allow them their freedom, they're going to hurt the empire by drawing out all these resources you're giving them. Now, I don't care what generation it is, it's always about the money. You trace the money, you'll find the truth. They weren't concerned about the money going to the Jews. They were concerned because they weren't getting the money for what they wanted to do. So, King, you can't possibly give them all these resources because it'll take away from your kingdom. They also said that, and I'm summarizing here from Ezra, if you give them freedom, they'll rebel against you. And not only will they rebel against you, they'll lead all the nations around them to rebel against you. So that was the fake news. But not only was there fake news 25 centuries ago, there were also protesters. They began to protest. They began to say, this can't happen. And as a result, the work stopped. For ten years, not much went on. There was so much opposition and there, there was so much uh, going on behind the scenes. They built a few houses, they tried to build the temple, but they didn't have a wall, they couldn't protect themselves, and I won't even go there, but I could. You know, if I was, if I was spiritualizing Scripture this morning, here's the, passage I would, here's the message I would preach. The oppressed people are the Christians in the 21st century. This is spiritualizing. This is not the message. We're, we're the ones that are suffering. The broken walls are the southern border. And the gates are the truth of the Word of God that are being broken down. Now there's all kinds of parallels there, but that's not what the text says. So somebody say, preacher, get back to the text. And, and I will. But there are preachers who would preach it that way. We preach what the Bible says. We preach what God said. You can draw your conclusions and you can draw your application and maybe we'll make some application. But this is about Israel, not America. So, Ezra is an interesting read. I, I challenge you this week, I don't know if you are on Faith Life and read our newsletter and so forth, but I ask you to read Ezra. If you didn't, you can go back and read it. There's a lot that you can learn from reading history. Ezra had moderate success, but it took time and it took another king or two and it took another leader to bring ultimate success to what God wanted to accomplish in his land. So you can go over to Nehemiah with me, Nehemiah chapter 1, and I'll begin reading. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, probably were several Nehemiahs, specifying which one. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, which is in the fall of the year, uh, that in the twentieth year, that is the reign of the king, I was in Shushan, the citadel. Now let me stop there. The citadel was the summer palace of Artaxerxes, who is now king. And Nehemiah was serving there, but he was serving in a very high position. He was the second man in the land. There was the king, and then there was Nehemiah. He was a Jew. Ezra was a religious leader. He brought the people to the land, but Nehemiah is a Jew who has not been 
probably not been walking with God, probably not even given a thought to his homeland and what has happened, but he's serving here in this palace, and God has placed him in the highest position in the land. He's the king's cupbearer. That means it's up to him to protect the king's the king at all costs. If something happens to the king, guess what happens to Nehemiah? He tastes the king's wine. He tastes the king's food. He has top secret service uh, uh, approval. He knows everything that's going on in the land. The life of the king is in his hands. That was a powerful position to be in. It was also a very dangerous position to be in. Yet, God has placed Nehemiah there as he placed Esther for such a time as this. So you have Ezra, who had moderate success, but God has another man, even though they were discouraged and they thought it's never going to happen, God had another man in another position, a very unlikely position and a very unlikely man that he was going to use to accomplish what he wanted to do in his land. His name was Nehemiah. He had a cushy government job. Lots of responsibility, but lots of uh, benefits. So he's in the summer palace of the king serving one day, and he happens, nothing happens by coincidence, right? We would say he happened to run into two men. No, God providentially brought two men, two Jews, to talk to Nehemiah. They come into that palace for whatever reason, and they began to have a conversation. Verse 2, Hanani was one of the men. One of my brethren, a fellow Jew, came with men from Judah. And he began to ask them some questions. I asked them uh, how, concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. He began to inquire about how are things... He didn't even know what was going on in the land. But this is proof that one conversation can change your life and change someone else's life. Here's one conversation that they considered random, but it wasn't random at all. God brought a group of Jews into the presence of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah had to ask the questions. And he did ask the question. Now, when he asked the question, he would probably wished he hadn't. You ever ask somebody, how are you doing? And an hour later, you thought, why did I ever ask that question? Because you get more than you wanted to hear. Well, it's still right to ask questions and to, and to uh, be concerned about people. Nehemiah, though, had a decision to make after he got the answer. Now, the answer wasn't good. The answer was very discouraging. In fact, the answer was heartbreaking. And in verse number 3, they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity, those who were left in the land, those who came back with Ezra, those who are left in captivity, from the captivity in the province are in great distress and reproach. They're barely surviving. Barely surviving. The wall of Jerusalem, Nehemiah, the great city of Jerusalem, the walls are broken down. They have no way to defend themselves. They have no uh, structure. They're just... Uh, sitting ducks out in the open, and they're being reproached, they're being abused, uh, they're being opposed, they're being taken advantage of. And moreover, the gates of that great city have been burned with fire. What a sad answer. Now, at this point, Nehemiah has a decision to make, just like we do. Here's the decision. What am I going to do with what I just heard? How am I going to respond to what I just heard? Here's, here's a terrible situation. Here's, here's a grim time and uh, God has put me in a position to do something. But the question is, am I even going to care enough to follow up on what I've heard? So Nehemiah hears how difficult things are in the land, but he's going to do something about it.
And as we look at the life of Nehemiah, I can, I can draw a parallel in this. Here we are in 21st century America. We know what's going on around us. What does God want us to do? You know, one of the casualties of the last year, I fear, has been this. The greatest struggle of the church right now is apathy. We are so apathetic. We watch things going on around us. Sometimes we don't know what to do. But sometimes we know what to do, but we're too apathetic to get up and do something about it. For 50 years, people in Israel had been apathetic. What can we do? Nothing we can do. I guess we'll just go along with everything that's happening. You know, we'll just keep compromising. We'll just keep uh, going along and, and what is to be will be. Well, it took a man named Ezra and another man named Nehemiah to say, wait a minute. What are we going to do about this situation? What does God want us to do about this situation? That's the bigger question. And God worked in the heart of a king and he allowed them to go back to the land and then they were opposed. But then he brought another man and, and God began to work in his heart and he began to ask himself some questions that all of us need to ask ourselves today and this week. And as Nehemiah pondered what to do, I want to share just four things with you this morning. This is an outline that came from Warren Wearsby. Again, I can improve on it, so I'm just going to use his outline and I'm just going to give him credit. This didn't come from me, although I did some research. And, but this is the best I found. Here's Nehemiah. <clears throat> Living in a grim day. Discouraging. Hopeless. What did Nehemiah do that we can all do? First of all, he cared enough to ask. He cared enough to ask. Verse 3, they came to me and, and he said, how's it going? What's, what's going on in my homeland? What's going on in my nation? What's going on in my country? You know, somebody's got to ask that question. John's been asking that question for several weeks. Some people don't want to hear it. Some people, it's too negative, it's, it's too pessimistic. Well, it, it's the truth. There are some things happening in our nation that are directly against God and directly against the foundation of our nation. What are we going to do about it? He cared enough to ask. But then he had a bigger decision to make. When he found out the answer, what was he going to do? Was he going to walk away? He could have. He could have said, you know... I'm five years from retirement. Uh, I think I'll just take it easy and I'll just, you know, push back and everything's going great for me. I really don't want to stir up anything. I don't want to destroy my life at this point. I think I'll just let that go in one ear and out the other. So asking was just the first step. When we ask and then we get information, we have another decision to make. What am I going to do about it? Now, Nehemiah as we will see, began to open his heart to God and God began to lead him and to convict him and to say to him, Nehemiah, you're the one to do something about it. And he had to decide, do I care? Do I even care what's happening in my country? Do I even care what's happening to my people, to my brethren? And he could have walked away at that point and said, no, I really don't care. And some people have done that. Some people have said, I don't care. Is that what God wants us to do? No. He cared enough to ask, but when he found out the answer, he cared enough to weep. He began to weep for his nation. He was moved to tears. See, he, he had a heart for his country and he had a heart for his people and he had a heart for God. Maybe it hadn't been stirred in a while. Maybe he was just a secular Jew who'd been off 
pursuing his career, but now God has challenged Nehemiah, and now he's opened his eyes to what's going on, and his heart was moved by what was going on. And I'm so convicted by this. Because I had to ask myself, how many tears have I shed for our nation? Remember Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who preached prophetically and tears and wept. He preached with passion. He preached with emotion. And he said, if you don't turn back to God, judgment is coming. And he preached his whole life. And nobody listened. But it was okay. He was faithful to God. And when he preached prophetically and no one listened, eventually what he preached as prophecy came to pass. And that's where Israel was here. But he preached with tears. And I also thought to myself, when was the last time I wept over one person's soul? When was the last time you wept over somebody's spiritual condition? When was the last time we were moved enough by God to get our focus off of ourselves long enough to be moved in our heart for somebody else? People we know and people we don't know. Nehemiah didn't know these men personally. He just met them. They were an acquaintance. He didn't know these 50,000 people who were trying to survive in the land. But when God moved in his heart and told him what to do, it didn't matter if he knew them or not. It didn't matter if he liked them or not. It didn't matter if they were like him or not. It's what God had told Nehemiah to do. But he had a choice to make. Did he care enough to ask? Yes. What was he going to do with what he heard? When he heard the answer to these questions, he wept. Do you know what Jesus did when He looked down on Jerusalem and saw His people scattered like a sheep with no shepherd? What did He do? He wept. He wept. His heart was broken for His people. His heart was broken for His nation. His heart was broken for sinful people who don't even know God and think they're doing the right thing, maybe destroying the foundations of our nation, and no one cares. I'll tell you something, church. If the church doesn't care, nobody cares. If the church does not care about the souls around us, nobody cares. But God cares. And He's looking for some people who care. And he's looking for some people who will be moved as his Spirit of God works in their hearts. And they began to realize where they are and where we are. Where are we? We're headed to destruction away from God. What are we going to do? Well, we can be like Nehemiah. Now we know the answer to what's going on. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to be moved by it? Are we going to find ourselves praying before God and weeping? Well, that's what happened to Nehemiah, verse 4. So it was when I heard these words. What words? The words of these men and the position of his country. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. Now, it's one thing to ask, it's another thing to care, enough to ask and to cry. But there's a progression here. You know, he could have had a good cry and gotten up and gone back to work and everything would have been fine. He'd gotten it out of his system and he'd have gone on. No, that wasn't what God told Nehemiah to do. He began to fast and to pray. And it wasn't just an hour, and it wasn't just a meal. He was so consumed by what God had shown him that the the daily things of life did not matter in comparison to what was going on around him and what God had told him. He was willing to lay aside the fleshly desires and all the the benefits 
in that cushy palace. Can you imagine all the things he had at his disposal? He could probably have anything to eat he wanted. He could have anything that, that he ordered. But it was nothing to him. Could it be that in a nation where we've had so much, we've been lulled to sleep as a church? He began to pray. And here's what he prayed. You can read it or you can just listen to the prayer. Why don't you just listen to it? I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Nehemiah included himself there. I have sinned. We have sinned. And we've sinned against God, Almighty God. We've sinned against you. Both my Father's house and I have sinned. He makes it very clear. We have acted very corruptly. We've acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. They knew. They knew what God had commanded. And here's the encouraging part. But, if you return to me, and keep my commandments, and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He's going to rebuild that temple. And he's going to be worshipped. And sacrifices are going to be offered there again to him. That's the promise of God from prophets in the past. If you'll turn to me, I will restore you. Verse 10, he's praying history. He's praying the Word of God. He's done some research. He hadn't just sat down in an hour and, and uh, let this pass. God has consumed him. And verse 10, Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray... Please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. What a prayer. What a prayer to God for a nation. I want to ask you to do something this week. Would you pray this prayer with me for our nation before God? Now, I know this was to Israel. But there's so much here that applies to us, isn't it? We have sinned. We've all sinned. I've sinned. Our nation has sinned against God and against His Word. And if we care and God grips our heart like it gripped Nehemiah's heart, we'll be moved to action. We won't just walk away and say, well, I guess there's nothing we can do. Oh, there's always something God can do. Maybe there's nothing we can do. What do we, it's what God wants to do that's important. What does He want to do? He's left us here. He must want to do something. And when we turn to Him and we say, Lord, here's, here's the right question. Not what I can do, but what does God want to do? What does God want to do in this congregation? What does God want to do in this community? What does God want to do where you work and where you go to school and where 
You rub shoulders with people every day. What does He want to do with you? He's called you to do something just like He's called Nehemiah. And He's called me. What are we going to do? Well, He cared enough to ask and to weep and to pray. But that wasn't enough. He asked Nehemiah to volunteer. Nehemiah, I need you. Now I put you in a, in a high position. And I put you there for a reason. Now I'm going to ask you to, to have some courage. I'm going to ask you to step out on faith. I'm going to ask you to risk it all. I'm going to ask you to, to, to decide what's more important. The things that you have or your relationship with Almighty God. That's where we are in America, folks. That's where the church is, in my opinion. What are we going to do? Here's what I want us to do this morning. <clears throat> it's been a long time since we opened the altar and said, come and pray. This is not a judgment upon your heart or anything else this morning, but as we bow our heads, I'm going to ask Christian to come up this morning and just play something softly in the background while God works in our hearts. You can pray where you are. But are we moved by what we see going on around us? Do we care? Do we care enough to ask some questions? What can I do? What should I do? What should we do? Do we care enough to be moved to tears for what we see going on around? Isn't, isn't our spiritual heritage worth shedding some tears over? And aren't the souls of people who've yet to hear the name of Jesus Christ worth the inconvenience of some tears and some fasting and some praying? So with our heads bowed this morning, I'm just going to allow you for a moment to talk to God and say, okay, Lord, here's what Nehemiah was called to do. What am I called to do? If you'd like to come this morning and pray here, you can do that. Or you can pray right where you are, but I'll lead us here in a few minutes as we search our hearts, as we contemplate what God's going to teach us as we continue through this series.